I want to share the process of how God birthed the desire to teach this in my heart. Um, I, uh, ever since I was a little girl, I've been in church since I was a young girl, and every marriage conference I've ever been to, people have taught things, and every time they, they say them, I, I leave thinking, that's not in the Bible, and like, that's not God. And it would do something in me that would just make me think, I just could never get married because what they say I'm supposed to be, I'm not that. And I'm evidently I'm a man in, in girl form because I'm, I relate to what they're saying. This is, And I would leave so confused every time. Then when I did Titus 2, Josh and I did a lot of marriage counseling when we were doing that. And I would hear the same thing over and over again from these young women. I would hear how they loved their husbands and they wanted a good relationship, but they always felt used. They felt, um, they started describing what a, a harlot would feel like is really what they would describe. And so I started lifting that to the Lord and saying, that can't be right. If we're teaching marriage right, this can't be the right fruit. And then I would hear men who were frustrated in our marriage counseling that they weren't getting what, what was due them. And I, I would struggle with that and lift it to the Lord. And the Lord started taking me through the Bible and just showing me his heart for marriage and how what we have taught in the church actually produces the spirit of harlotry in the hearts of women. And it actually produces a spirit of dominance in the heart of men that God never intended to be in the marriage. And I'm going to share some biblical truths, and I'm going to point out some things that have been taught that are not in the Bible. There are men mixing. It's almost like I'm going to take you from learning about marriage at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and I'm going to escort you over here to the tree of life and teach you the heart of God, okay? So it's going to take us a while to get there. Just stick with me. I'm going to lay a very broad foundation tonight. Next week, I'm going to talk about sexual intimacy. And whether you're single or married, I want you to come. Um, but I really think it's going to bless you. Because I know when God started showing Josh and I, it changed everything. It changed how we relate to each other in intimacy. It changed how we relate to each other in conversation. It changed everything. And so I just want to share these truths with you, and I believe that um, the heart of God is in what we're saying. So I'm really excited about it, and I'm terrified all at the same time. So I hope I, I felt the prayers this week, actually. I've asked many of you to pray, and I've felt the prayers. So we're going to start with just laying out what the purpose of marriage is. Why? What is the purpose of marriage? And really, in the Bible, there are four main purposes for marriage. Um, and I'm just going to tell you what they are, and then we're going to go through each one and just kind of look at them from the Bible perspective. But the first, the first main purpose of marriage is when God even talks about creating man, he says that we're created in his image and his likeness. So the first purpose of marriage is we're image bearers of God. We're displaying his image in the earth. That's the first purpose. You're not going to hear a lot of, like, like what you hear in the world, by the way, in this teaching. Like, I'm not going to talk about chemistry. 
Although God's all about it, he created the whole thing. Um, But if you approach it God's way, you're going to experience a supernatural empowerment in every part of marriage, including the marriage bed. Um, So we're living expressions of the Godhead. We're image bearers. The second purpose of marriage, God commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. It was for procreation, but not just procreation. It was for, there was a fruitfulness that comes from our life together. And there's so many implications of that. If one can put a thousand to flight, two can put 10,000 to flight together, we move things in the spirit in a way that you can't by yourself. So there's a fruitfulness in marriage. The third purpose of marriage is a living demonstration of Christ and his church. It's a living demonstration of Jesus and how he relates to his church. And the fourth purpose of marriage is to conform you to the image of Christ. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. It's to conform you to the image of Christ. Okay, so let's talk about being living expressions of the Godhead. Let's go to Genesis Uh, Let's read Genesis 1. Um, Oh, honey, we didn't do our disclaimer. Should we do our disclaimer? Yes, we should. Um, That was a great time. Yeah, let me me share this. So so over the next couple of weeks, I just want to say this for not just men, but for women. Um, that over the next few weeks, we're going to deal with um, not just emotional intimacy, but sexual in- intimacy. And in the church, there's a paradigm of how that has been taught that damages both men and women. And we're going to dispel that um, with the Word of God. But one of the things I want to share, and then Josh is going to share something, one of the things I want to share about that is that if you look in the book of Proverbs, all through the book of Proverbs, it encourages you. There are three main things that Proverbs will talk about, about lust in our flesh. It'll talk about don't get drunk with wine. It'll talk about um, not being a glutton or a friend of gluttons. And then I'll talk about sexual impurity. And all three of those things are things that are okay. It's okay to eat. It's okay to drink wine. And it's okay to have sexual intimacy. But what Proverbs tells us is when those things become the driving force of your life, they're an idol, and they've exalted themselves to a place that they don't belong. And so we're going to talk about that in this setting. Okay. So, again... Not to bash marriage conferences, but the problem that each of us saw was every time we went, they taught man's needs and women's needs. And man's greatest need was either sex and then respect or respect and then sex. And then they would vary the woman's greatest need kind of based on what their wife liked or did not like. And it was essentially a sociology lesson. And um some of you were probably here a week that I responded relatively strongly in the spirit to a sociology lesson and I just don't mix 
God with man's reasoning. So, sex is not a need. Don't mean to take it away from you, but it's not a need. It is a desire. And that desire controlled by God is a wonderful, delightful thing. And that desire out of control or controlled wrongly is lust, and that makes it idolatry. Desire for your spouse is directed by the Holy Spirit is beautiful. Honor, love, desire, and sex are fruit of your relationship with God and with each other. And desire and sex are fruit of how you treat each other. So when we get to that next week, Josh just wanted to do this disclaimer so men wouldn't just shut down and not hear what we have to say. Having Karen say Uh, sex is not a need is one thing. Having a man say it is... So let me quickly say that on on the coattails of that. The Bible says God meets all of our needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So God's the need meter. And one of the things we're going to talk about through this expression of the Godhead is that God takes two whole people who have healthy relationships with God, two whole people that have been saved, healed, and delivered. And when he draws them to himself... And they move towards God. They necessarily move together. And that everything about marriage is based like that. And so I'm going to say this. Sex is not a need of a man or a woman. Sex is a command of the union. And sex is an outward expression of inward connection. Just like baptism is an outward expression of inward connection. And next week, we're going to talk all about that. So you don't want to miss it. It's going to be good. You're, going to, you're really going to like it, guys. It will. I'm telling you, if you get this revelation, your wife will want you in a new and fresh way. I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you. Okay, so here we go. Everybody say, I love Karen, because your faces don't say that. Okay, Genesis 1. We're going to look at this scripture. Genesis 1, 26. Genesis 1, 26, and it said, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and the cattle over all the earth and over creeping things that creep on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them. And said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill and subdue the earth, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and every living thing that moves on the earth. So the first thing we see here is this picture of how God created man and woman, and he did it intentionally so that we would look like God. And God made us in such a way that as man walks with God and woman walks with God, it draws us together. I want you to get this idea in your head so deeply because everything in marriage works like this. We are not talking about a contract. We are talking about a covenant. Mm -hmm. People all over the world get married under a contract, but you can only have a covenant marriage when God is the third partner of the marriage. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about a covenant. Okay? So God is a huge part of what draws us together. So, um... And Ecclesiastes, someone read Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. Someone want to read that for me? 
Okay. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And does it go on and say a threefold cord? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Okay, so again, we're seeing the picture of man, God, man, woman. And when you are drawing to God, God draws you together and he makes that union solid and it shows a picture of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus the head, the, the wife, the Holy Spirit is the bride. We've got the picture of it all. Do you all still see? Okay, if you don't approach marriage from that perspective, you're going to miss the whole thing. Because God's your partner. God's your partner. God's going to give you revelation about your spouse. God's mm-hmm. going to give you wisdom to walk with your spouse. If you're not putting God into the mix, you're missing the whole point of a covenant marriage. Because we're showing the image of God and his likeness. In Genesis chapter 2, we're going to look at something here about this um, So I I wanted to show you this because everything that God does, everything he does, he does it this way. Everything he creates, he creates it this way. If you look in Genesis 1-1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth became without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. So you could say between verse 1 and verse 2, Satan was thrown to the earth. Then darkness was on the face of the deep. The next thing it says, The Spirit of God began to hover and brood over the face of the water. And then God said, let there be light. God stirs by the Holy Spirit desire. Proverbs says he puts desire in your heart. And then he causes that desire to come to pass. The declaration happens. God does everything that way. So I want you to see that when God was creating man and God creating women, he does the exact same thing. I just want you to see this way of God. Um, So let's look at Genesis chapter 2. We're going to do, start at verse 8. Let's see. I said I wanted to read it out of the Passion. Do you have it in the Passion? Okay. I left a note to myself to read it from the Passion, so I want to go read it from the Passion. Let's see. Starting at verse 8. Then Yahweh God planted a lush garden paradise in in the east, in the land of delight. And there he placed the man that he had formed. Yahweh God made all kinds of beautiful trees to grow there, fruitful trees to satisfy and taste. In the middle of the garden, he planted the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Flowing from the land of delight was a river to water the garden and from there he divided it into four branches the first river was overflowing increase circles the golden laden land of halvana the gold of that land was pure and the pearls and onyx were found there the second river the gaishan flows through the entire land of cush the third river the hidakel flows through assyria and the fourth river which is the Euphrates. 
Yahweh took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work and watch over it. And Yahweh commanded him, you may freely eat of every fruit of the garden, but, of, but you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And then the next verse says, then Yahweh said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a suitable partner, a help, a strength for him. So I want to point out that God made man. He put him in the garden and he gave him a command. And then we don't know what happened. We can't say what happened because God doesn't tell us. But God sees the activity and says, this isn't good for him to be alone. I want to back up and show you the environment. Those four rivers, anytime the Bible has four, it's talking about the earth. But God is intending for man's creative life to be this. This is what those four rivers mean. Increase, bursting forth, rapid fruitfulness, breaking forth. Okay? So God is expecting blessing on blessing on blessing to be for this man. So let's see how, what God does. So God says it's not good for him to be alone. He's going to make a helper. And then what God does, I'm going to skip this next, next part because I'm going to switch to this Bible. Um, then what God does is he parades past Adam. First, he creates all the living things, and he parades them past Adam and has Adam make, um, Adam make names for all of them. So I want you to see this as the Holy Spirit hovering. What is God doing? He is creating desire in Adam for the helper that's coming. Because as Adam sees every living creature go by, he sees that they all have helpers. But he doesn't have a helper. And God's creating desire. The Bible says in Proverbs, God puts desire in your heart and then causes desire to come to pass. This is a way of God. He does everything this way. Y'all see that? This is important. It'll help you in life. This word help that he said, I'm going to make a help, is help meet or succor. That succor means assistance or support. It has with it the idea that someone is in a prison and they're liberated out. There's something about Adam's situation that he needs a liberator. He needs a liberator, the helper. It also has a picture of one that comes alongside lifting you and walking with you as one. That's what the woman is going to be. So in 2.18, let's look at it. It says, and God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper comparative to him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast. Let's see. Let's jump on down here. Um, verse 21, the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she has been taken out of man. Therefore, because of this, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. So I want to say something right here about, about this word joined. It's, it can also be translated cleave. You know, you've heard it said leave and cleave. Um, that word it actually means follow hard, abide, pursue, hold fast, and stick together. So I want to throw out this part. Um, 
a lot of times before you get married, you are in hot pursuit of the finding, finding the one, finding the one your heart is crying for. You're in hot pursuit of the finding. But many people think that's the pursuit, and that's not the pursuit of marriage. That's the pursuit of finding. After you have the finding and you come together in that covenant, you begin the pursuit of becoming. Becoming one. It's a process of becoming one. Just like you are be being saved, you are becoming one as a couple. And that deserves the same pursuit as the finding. Mm -hmm. Are you with me? Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you for saying that, Mark. I needed that. Um, My everything is shaking. (laughs) My everything is shaking. It's not, I mean, I don't, I'm sorry. Okay, I just want to share this. So in Proverbs 3, I'm I'm just going to quote the scripture. In Proverbs 3, starting at verse 4, it says, um, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll direct your path. The care and paraphrase translation of that scripture is attention is the birthplace of desire. Whatever you give attention to, you begin to have desire for. Have you ever noticed when you watch a television show you've never watched before and maybe you watch it more than once, all of a sudden it becomes your show? Why? Because you gave attention to it and now you have desire for it. Attention is the birthplace of desire. Why am I saying this? Because when you give attention to your marriage, you give attention to God about your marriage, God will birth desire in you, right desire, right desire for your mate, right desire to help, right desire to converse. God will create the right desires in your heart if you'll give him your attention. All right? Um, So... We see this picture of being an image bearer of God. And I want to skip now from being the image bearer to being a demonstration of Christ in the church. Because if you begin to look at Christ in the church, and the next week when we take that perspective and paradigm and move it over to intimacy, God's going to give you a revelation that you've never seen before. But um, I just want to look at this. Let's go to Ephesians 5. I want somebody, I want Mark to read because he just does it so expressively. Will you do the Mark expressive reading for me, Mark? Oh, wait. What verse? Uh, well, I kind of want the amplified. Do you mind all the wordiness? It's classic. Sure. Do you mind it? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Okay. So all Ephesians, yeah. Ephesians 5, 15 through 21. Look carefully how you walk, live purposely and worthily and accurately, not as unwise and witless, but as wise, sensible, intelligent people, making the very most of the time, buying up each opportunity because the days are evil. To what number? Keep going, you're gonna go all the way to 27. Do not be vague and thoughtless and foolish, but understanding and firmly grasping what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But ever be filled and stimulated with the Holy Spirit. Speak out to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, offering praise with voices and instruments, 
and making melody with all your heart to the Lord, at all times and for everything, giving thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Wives, be subject, be submissive, and adapt yourselves to your own husbands as a service to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, himself the Savior of his body. As the church is subject to Christ, so let wives also be subject in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in glorious splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such things, that she might be holy and faultless. Even so, husbands should love their wives as being, in a sense, their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and carefully protects and cherishes it, as Christ does the church, because we are members, parts of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is very great. But I speak concerning the relationship of Christ and the church. Okay, we're going to stop right there. So I want you to see, that I read this whole thing, because when you're interpreting the Bible, context is king. And I want you to see the context of Paul's admonition for submission. Because he starts by saying, live your God life abiding and full of the Holy Spirit. And when you're attached to and living from the outflowing river of the Holy Spirit, then as a body, submit to one another. And while we're at it, wives, yield to your husbands. Adapt yourselves to them. And husbands, love your wife the way Christ loved the church. Do you see the context? There is a connection with the Father that's flowing down into the husband and wife. And when you live from that paradigm, if everything comes from that paradigm, it changes how you interact with each other. I'm going to point out some other things here about this. Um, submission, women, for us is, I want you to think of it as, if you know, whatever the, the property is, the more magnificent the property, the fancier the fence the fancier the fence that's on the property, and the fence is there to protect things from trespassing. Submission is the fence of your marriage. It's really a fence of your marriage. God will protect you, and I'm going to share about that in a minute. I'm going to show you a biblical example of what I'm saying. <coughs> but if you understand that God is your partner, and I know that Josh, I go to Josh, and we're working on something, and I know his response to me is wrong, I am not alone. I am a majority in my marriage because I have God. And I will go to God and I will plead with God, change me or change him. But I'm staying here until we're in agreement. And God will be my partner 
and work either to change me or change him. But that protection God made because of how valuable you are. And he doesn't want you vulnerable. It's never meant for domination. It's meant for the tender love of how Jesus sees you and protects you in your life. That's what a husband does. I also want to point out that in this context, it says husbands love their wives the way Christ loves the church. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to tell you straight out, guys, if you love your wife this way, she will always want you. Yes. Amen. And if she's not wanting you, you need to go back and take a look at your love life. Yeah, true. Okay? So let me just tell you some things, and I'm I'm going to share this uh, from a heart of love, and there's not a burden in what I'm getting ready to say. Guys, you are equipped for what I'm getting ready to say. There is no one equipped on the earth for your wife for this thing like you were equipped. But it also says right here that Christ loves the church, and he gives himself for her, for her, and he washes her with the water of the word, and he sanctifies her. He sets her apart. One of the things a husband is called to do in their wife is cultivate the gifts of God in them. Call out the greatness of who they are. Don't be scared or intimidated by what's there. Make place for it. When Josh and I got married, when we first got married, um, uh, I used to travel and sing, and I'm, I'm very shy Naturally, I really am. The idea of talking in front of people just makes me want to throw up. But God gives me boldness to do that, and I'm grateful for that, and I'm grateful for the gift. But it is a thing I have to overcome. And when uh, we first met, I traveled and sang, and that was normal for me. I could go out, do my thing, didn't have to talk to people, leave, boom, I'm, I'm done. But after that, God opened a door of opportunity for me to teach for the first time. And all the people in my life that were authority were hearing from the Lord, and they all felt like I was the one to do it. And I literally that night sat in our bedroom and cried, and I told Josh, I can't do this. Like, the idea makes me want to throw up. I'm so scared. I get, My heart is pounding. I cannot do this. God has got to have someone else to do this. And Josh said to me, honey, that gift is in you, and God's calling for that gift. Are you going to say no to God? And I just started crying, I can't say no to God, but I can't do this. He said, you can do this. Josh took every Thursday off. And in my living room, there were 23 women and Josh. He sat right across from me where David's sitting. And he said, baby, just tell me what you would tell me at the kitchen table that Jesus is telling you. That's all you need to do. And he drew out and cultivated the gift in me. There has never been a twist and a turn where God has used that gift that he hasn't felt like that's part of his ministry. There's never an intimidation factor or a belittling factor because Christ develops his bride. Are you with me? If you love your wife the way Christ loves the church, He sacrifices himself. You know, in marriage conferences, I just want to vomit when I hear sex begins in the kitchen because what they're teaching is manipulation, and manipulation is witchcraft. Right. And it opens up the door to all kinds of spirits. But there's a better way. Right. 
when God moves on Josh and reminds him, Karen has a Bible study today. And he sneaks in our bedroom and makes the bed because God prompted him to. God lets me feel an anointing of his love and Josh's love valuing me. And I want that man. Do you understand? He's not doing something to get points. He's right. yielding to the Holy Spirit. Right. Yeah. It's a totally different spirit. Are you with me? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Hallelujah. Woo. Okay, sorry. Pentecostal in me came out. Okay, husbands, let's see. Let's look at Colossians 3, 12 through 19. I want to show you this uh, because I just want, again, to, to hammer down. Oh, I'm just shaking. My Everything is shaking. Jesus, help me. Huh? Amen. I know. I just, uh, God is here. Can you read it, Colossians? 3, 12 through 19. Yes. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you all, you also must do. But of all these, above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, in which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Keep going. Okay. Was that 19? That was 17, sorry. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Okay, so I want you to see again, context is king. So he starts by telling you, put on Jesus. Mm-hmm. Get your Jesus on. Yeah. And from your Jesus, submit to your husband and walk in love. Okay, I want to talk about just a couple of things here real quick. Um, I want to jump back over to Ephesians, and I'm, I'm going to finish up here. How am I doing? Okay, so over here in Ephesians... I want to show you this. In Ephesians, it says that uh, no man, in verse 29 of chapter 5, it says, No man ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. I want to talk to you a minute about nourishing and cherishing your wife. So as a husband, it's your job to nourish and cherish your wife. Do you all see that? That's in the Bible right here. Y'all, y'all see that? Okay, this is real important. Okay, it's very important. That word nourish literally means to provide food or other substances necessary for growth, health, and good condition. Another, tra- another uh, meaning for nourish is to keep a hold of a belief or feeling. So part of a husband's job is to set the belief systems for the family. Mm-hmm. He sets belief for the family. Now I'm going to give you an example. When Josh and I got married... By the way, I have permission. I taught this to him just to make sure. When Josh and I got married, I was from a family of yellers. When people got upset in my family, we would like, I can't believe it. We yell. We yell. We're yellers. We were all yellers. 
uh, super confrontational. You, you know, if you move the wrong way, have the wrong face, you're going to get confronted with my people. There's nothing under the rug at our house. Josh, quiet people. No one ever confronts anything. Their rug is so bumpy, you could not walk across it. Do you understand what I'm saying? So when we got married, one of our first disagreements that we had, I, like I'm in the kitchen cooking, he's coming in from med school, and I'm ranting. I'm just ranting. And Josh, so incredibly quiet. He's listening. He's got a smile on his face. He walks in and he gets a, two chairs, drags them into the kitchen, and sits them where the chairs are facing each other. He walks over and he takes me by the hand, and I'm still just ranting. Sits me down in the chair and grabs my hand, and he looks me in the face, and he goes, Karen, I love you with all my heart. We are not going to be a yelling family. You know what happened right there? Because he was nourishing me. He's giving me a belief paradigm for our family that I didn't have before. And because he's doing it in the love of God, the anointing for me to change was right there. And when he said, we're not going to be yelling, I have the thought, is there another way? (laughs) Like, I didn't know you could not be a yelling family. And he said, I want to hear everything you have to say, and I want to work out what's bothering you, because I can tell you're passionately upset. But you don't have to yell to get my attention. We're not going to be a yelling family. From that day on, I didn't yell. I was changed in a moment. Why? I was being nourished by my husband. There was nourishment happening to me. Do y'all see this? I told you it was going to change. Okay, let's talk about cherishing. Let's talk about what cherishing. Cherishing means to protect and uh, for loving. It keeps hope in one's mind. So a cherishing and a loving... Um, there is a way that your husband can add value to you as a woman that no one else can add value to you. Um, To protect, cure for loving, to keep hope in one's mind. Um, I just, Josh is so good at these things, y'all. Josh is so good at these things. To cherish your wife, you value her above all else. I'm going to share something. I didn't tell you I was going to share this. I hope it's okay. Our very first date that we ever went on, we went on a non-date type thing to a convent, uh, to a concert, which he kind of tricked me into, but our first actual date date. So Josh has taken me to on this date, and he drives to his house, which for me is a big no-no. He lives by himself. I'm still living with my parents. I'm thinking... What's this creepy guy doing? He's like taking me to his house. We walk in the front door of his house and in the middle of the living room, he has a chair set up and a basin and anointing oil and a towel. And he walks me over to the chair and sits me down and he takes my shoes off and he says, I want to serve you. I want to love you and care for you. And he washed my feet. And... Y'all, he cherished me from the get-go. He let me know I was going to be valued. 
he wasn't taking a domineering position. He was taking the role of what Jesus does with you, of a servant. Also, want to say this. Um, have we read the scripture? Nope, it's in Peter where it talks about being reviled and all that. I'm getting ahead of myself. All right, let's go over to y'all. Y'all still with me? Yes. Do we need to go? Can I go a little further? Can I got 30 more minutes? Y'all come? All right, let me go 30 more minutes because I have this much further to go for today. Just this much. Stick with me this much longer. I know because I was so scared this morning. I'm less scared because you helped me. Okay, First Peter 2. You know, when you're blowing up sacred cows, it's a little scary. <laughs> I had to knock over, I knocked over the first one. Oh, it's like cow tipping. <laughs> it's like cow tipping. Okay, First Peter 2. First Peter 2. We're going to look at verse 18. First Peter 2, 18. Do you read it? Mm-hmm. Okay, how far? 18 through 25. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully, for what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For this to you, you were, for this, or for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. <clears throat> Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth? Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return? When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In like manner, you married women, be submissive to your own husbands, subordinating yourself as secondary and dependent on them, and adapt yourselves to them, so that even if they do not obey the word of the Lord, they may be won over not by discussion, but by the godly life of their wives." When they observe your pure and modest way in which you conduct yourself together with the reverence for your husband, you are to feel for him all that reverence includes, to respect, defer, revere, honor, esteem, appreciate, prize, in the human sense to adore, that is to admire, praise, be devoted to, deeply love, and enjoy your husband. Let your words not just merely be the external adorning or interweaving and nodding of the hair or wearing jewelry or change of clothes, but let it be the, I love that it says don't let it merely because it gives us permission to do all that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but let the inward adorning and beauty of the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible unfading charm of a gentle and peaceful spirit, which is not anxious or wrought up, but is very precious in the sight of God. For thus it is that the pious women of old who hoped in God were accustomed to beautify themselves and were submissive to their husbands, adapting themselves to them as secondary and dependent on them. It was thus that Sarah obeyed Abraham, following his guidance and acknowledgement over her, calling him Lord, master, leader, and authority. Sorry. You are her true daughters. If you do what's right, not letting it terrify you 
or giving way to hysterical fears or letting anxieties unnerve you. I just want to stop there because he's going to talk to men, but I want to deal with the women first. Again, context is king. So he starts in this context by telling us Jesus was beaten and he didn't deserve to be beaten. Jesus was insulted and he did not deserve to be insulted. You're not really walking in supernatural love when you're loving someone who's being loving to you. Supernatural love occurs when you're being loving to someone who doesn't deserve love. Are you with me? Mm-hmm. Okay, and so then he segues right into wives. And I just want to talk about this. First thing I want to say is we're against abuse of any kind. Right. We're not talking about abuse. The paradigm we're talking about is two people yielded to God, full of the Spirit of God, yielding to Him together, coming together. We're not talking about someone acting in their flesh, beating the tar out of someone. That is not love. It's abuse. Get out. We are not for that. That's not the context of this scripture. The context of this scripture is walking in the love of God or the goodness of God drawing someone into repentance without preaching at the person. Are you with me? So I'm going to give you some examples of this. First, I just want to talk about adapting to your husband's girls. We're called by God to adapt to them. And it's not just adapting to them in spiritual ways. It's adapting to them in natural ways. So I praise the Lord that Josh, is, Josh isn't a golfer. Um, but if he was a golfer, I would have adapted to that. But my husband is a big football fan. And the Lord quickened the scripture to me years ago and said, He loves football. You love him. You learn to love football. So I prayed and I told the Lord, I'm going to need some help with this. And that I told you this last week, that particular year on the NFL, they were miking the player and they miked Peyton Manning. And I loved, like, I was just sitting there going, he is pastoring the offensive line. Like, do you hear? He's, like, encouraging them. He's telling them what they do right. And God was making me fall in love with the game. So I got a book. I learned the rules. I could call it like an official. I, I wanted to be the first female official. I learned enough about the game that when he's working and his team is on, I would text him updates. So in between patients, he'd look and I'd go, the Pats are up. First quarter, we had a pick six. I'd tell him exactly what happened. Why? Because I'm adapting to the man that I love and I'm choosing to companion him and something he loves. Why? Because that's what Jesus does with me. He talks to me just how I am, so much that his voice sounds just like me. When you walk in the love of God, girls, you're gonna do that. You're gonna adapt to that. And now I'm so passionate, he's got me, I got my own flag, yeah. so I can throw a flag when, it, when we need to. I'm like, all in. The point is, adapt yourself. You adapt yourself to your husband. Do you understand? Y'all, y'all with me? There's no sand or rice in this. It's a real flag. Oh, it's serious. I do. You don't throw do it not. in anger. You throw it because there's a penalty. But does she ever throw it when you're in the Oh, home? no. No. And Josh, it's almost... Josh knows. Josh so has my heart. I will tell you this. Even when I'm mad. So mad. He knows if he can get my eyes, it's over. Because if he can look me in the eye, I just melt and go, I want to be mad at you, but I love you too much. Okay, so I'm going to share this other thing with you. So 
this, this Bible verse down here, it says, you're like the daughter of Sarah, and it brings up Sarah. Mm-hmm. And it says, Save Sarah, I want you to see what it says. It says, Sarah believed God, and she called Abraham Lord. She believed God, and she called, and the two cross-references for this, y'all, girls, girlfriends, two times, her husband told someone that she was not his wife, but his sister, and gave her away to that person as a concubine. Not once, no, not once, twice, two times. And both times, Sarah believed God and called Abraham Lord. And you know what God did? The first time, he visited that king. And he said, if you touch her, I'm going to wipe out your whole family. She is his wife. Don't touch her. And Sarah walked out. The second time he did it, you know, and most women, if you did this again, you'd be, it'd be over. It would be done. But the second time he did it, again, she believed God. And God visited Abimelech. And they had sickness in the family. And Abimelech was so upset with Abraham and terrified of Sarah because of how God visited him. He gave Abraham all of his wealth. So just take this and get out of here. Just get out of here. Why? Because Sarah believed God and she called Abraham Lord. She was just like Jesus. Mm -hmm. We don't deserve his sacrifice. There's nothing in us that's worthy of that. I'm going to share it with you. So years ago, Josh was in a season where he was walking in a little bit of deception. And he was finishing med school and he had a job offer. And he came to me and he shared this job offer to me. And he said, you know, this amazing offer. I feel like it's the Lord. I want you to go to dinner and meet these people. So I go to dinner and the whole time, every Holy Spirit alarm I have is going, danger, danger, run, don't do it. It's, you know, everything is going off on the inside of me. And we're walking out to the car and my sweet little husband opens my door. And as I'm getting in, he goes, so what do you think? And I said, I think they're unscrupulous men and I think we need to run. And he shut the door and he walked around to get in the other side and he opened the door and he said, I knew you'd agree with me. I'll sign the contracts next week. And when he said that, the Holy Spirit quickened the scripture to me that without a word, her husband was one. And it was like God was saying to me, don't say another word. Believe God and call him Lord. So I went to pray, and this was January. I'm praying, Jesus, you got to change him. He's graduating in June. Jesus, you got to change him. You got to change this, Jesus. You got to change this. You got to change him, change me. I don't care, but you need to change something because this isn't wrong. <coughs> and every time we would get closer, it was like he couldn't hear. I never said another word to him, did I? I never said another word to him about it. I prayed about it every day, prayed. Here we are. Now we're March. Now we're April. Now we're May. Now we're June. At the end of June, God, we were talking one night. We were on our way to the park, and God gave me a question to ask Josh. And when I did, the anointing of God was on the question, and it melted the deception right off of him. He was supposed to start July 1. We already have contracts signed. And he said to me, this job is not right. I'm like, oh, thank you, Jesus. Yes, it's not right. And he was like, what are we going to do? And I said, we're going to trust God because he just showed you it wasn't right. And I've been praying about it for six months. And God's going to get you out of this. 
So we caught hands together, we agreed. The way they had set up the money in the structure, in the contractual agreement, God did something like he did with Jacob, where everything Josh did multiplied exponentially. So these guys were gonna make nothing, and Josh was gonna make multiple thousands of dollars. And so they contacted him and said, we wanna, we wanna buy you out of the contract. And within two weeks, he was out. See, God is your partner. You're not, it's a threefold cord. It's not two people. And I want to say this, Josh is, Tracy and I have this conversation all the time because she feels this way about David. There is no man like Josh, I will just tell you. I, I adore him. I, I talk all the time. If something ever happened to him, I don't know that I would ever marry because he's just so wonderful. But Josh's wonderfulness is not what's kept me true to Josh for 39 years. What's kept me true to Josh for 39 years is I made a covenant with Jesus. Right. And I stood before him and said, I'll do this. I'm going to give you my life. And I'm going to give it and forever be tied to him. And because you're my partner, I know that it's going to be okay. And because he's your partner, I know you're in the midst. Do you understand? I've been faithful to Josh because of God, not because he deserves it. There should be something in you. Um, in First Peter 3, 7, I want to I wanna read this and then I'm, oh, I'm doing so much better than I did this morning. Thank you, Jesus. In the same way you married men should live considerately with your wives. In the same way. So guys, I want to say, because Paul says in the same way, there's an adapting you do. Josh hates yard work. I will just tell you straight up, he hates it, but I love messing with flowers planting stuff and he will get out there and just come alongside and love the thing I love because I love it mm -hmm. and because quality time is one of my love languages you sit with me for 30 minutes I'm full I'm good to go so you adapt too. Uh, live considerately with your wives with intelligent recognition of the marriage relationship honoring the woman as physically weaker but realizing that your joint heirs, everybody say joint heirs, joint heirs. Yes. of the grace of God's life in order that your prayers may not be hindered. So the moment you start having domineering thoughts like you're the big boss, your prayer life is over. Because God is the big boss in a marriage and you're his partner. And this scripture is saying the moment you forget that, it hinders your prayer life with God. The moment you start. Another thing that it says right here is this word understanding. Live. Some translations say understanding. But guys, it's the word revelation. Mm -hmm. God has rhema information for you about your wife. Rhema information about how to captivate her heart. Rhema information about how to work with her. Change your life. It Change your life. Honor and dignity as heirs together. So here's the deal. Here's the way Josh and I look at it. You're heirs together in Jesus. You walk together. But there will come times in your marriage where you, you, you don't agree. And you need a tiebreaker. He's the tiebreaker. And if he's wrong, God's your partner. Are you with me? 
Heirs together, he's the tiebreaker. If he's wrong, God's your partner. And God can turn a heart. God knows how to turn a heart. Uh, all right, let's look at 8. Verse 8, it says, Finally, um, all of you should be of one and the same mind, united in the Spirit, sympathizing with one another, loving one another, as brethren of the same household, compassionate, courteous, tender-hearted, humble, never return insult for insult. Never return insult for insult, scolding, tongue-lashing, or berating, but on the contrary, blessing, praying for the welfare and happiness and protection, truly pitying and loving them. For know that, that to this you have been called, that you may yourselves inherit a blessing from God, that you may obtain the blessing as heirs, bringing welfare and happiness and protection. For let him who enjoys life in good days, whether apparent or not, keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking lies. Let him turn away from wickedness and shun it. Let him do what's right and let him search for peace and seek it eagerly. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ear is attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who practice evil to frustrate and defeat them. Remember, this is all in the context of talking about marriage. So I'm just going to say this, and this is where I'm going to end for tonight. Your marriage should be mannerly. Mannerly. Josh and I still say, please, thank you. We're still kind. We still defer to one another. Um, I'm going to say this. Uh, we had friends when we were newlyweds, and we used to tease them because she took this so extreme. She never would fart when he was around. She never would, you know, and I would think, oh, that's so painful or whatever. But there's a, there's a respect. My point is there's a respect and honor for one another. We aren't slobs with one another. We aren't, um, we don't coarse jest with one another. I don't do a jab and say I was just joking. Do you understand what I'm saying? I treat him with the respect that's due him, and he treats me with that same respect and kindness. Here's the deal. That behavior affects your prayer life. When you walk out of the Spirit of Christ, you're walking out of love, and the moment you walk out of that, you're walking out of the anointing of God to keep you and prosper you. So you want to bring that and keep right here in the abiding place of Jesus. Are you with me? Mm -hmm. And in that place, he can alter your tongue. Now, we've been married for 39 years, and there have been times where I've been disrespectful or unkind and called him. There, I, we could probably count them on a hand, or I've called him names. When that happens, I repent. I humble myself. I acknowledge that I was wrong that it's never appropriate to treat him in that manner. I ask him to forgive me. We pray together, and we stay together until there's no yuck here. Remember last week when I talked a little bit about ascending into God until what God's word says is what you believe? You know, I shared with you the example of when my house burned down. I said to the Lord, Psalm 91 says, No plague will come near my dwelling, and I don't know if you know, but my house is on fire. So I had to get alone with God and let my heart ascend into him until he 
dealt with my heart to where I really believed that scripture. Mm-hmm. Even though my experience was framing something else. Mm-hmm. Are you with me? Mm-hmm. The same thing is true with your mate. You come back around and you resolve it until there's no yuck med in your heart. Are you with me? Because yes. yuck med will kill your garden. It'll keep you out of the it'll keep you out of the life of Christ. So we've looked at, at these two two different things this week. We've looked at being image bearers of God the Father and being expression of Christ in the church. Next week we're gonna take that and bring it into um, and I'm just going to give you a quick little preview and then we'll pray and we'll do communion. But one of the things um, about covenant and marriage is that um, why the intimacy is made the way that it's made. I don't know if you know this, but a woman, if she's a virgin, the reason why the Bible is so big about virginity is that if she's a virgin, there's a hymen. And the hymen is actually blood. And when there is the actual connection, there's a blood covenant. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission for sin. There's a blood covenant that's cut. And that picture is exactly the picture of Christ in the church. Do you know that when you yield Jesus your life, you give Jesus your life? The Bible says he literally comes and lives on the inside of you. And what does he do? He plants the seed of eternal life and leaves it in the form of the Holy Spirit that grows and causes you to be fruitful and multiply in God life. That intimacy we're going to talk about next week is the outward expression of the inward connection of marriage. And it is a picture of Christ and his church. Are you with me? And so we're going to talk about that next week. So anybody have anything they want to say or add or no? Or correct me or fix me? You're here. Okay. Good job. Good job. That verse in uh, First Peter when it says this is precious in the sight of God, um, Holy Spirit opened that up to me a number of years ago, and I was actually shocked. It's it's a word only used three times in the New Testament. It literally means extremely expensive. Mm. And I thought one of the times that it's used extremely expensive is when Mary poured out that nard on Jesus, it was extremely expensive. So when it talks about this about wives it's extremely expensive to God and it changes everything. Mm -hmm. The other thing Dan Moeller really deals with this. He goes, Adam wasn't lonely, he was alone. Yeah. He goes, he's in the fullness Mm -hmm. of the image of God. He's not lonely. God's not lonely. He goes, the issue was where was there an expression to be able to express the love of God? Because, because I've heard this taught in some single things that, you know, he would, you know, God made a woman because he was lonely. He wasn't lonely. Mm-hmm. There was the fullness of the love of God. And it was like God created a woman to, for there to be a full expression of the love of God that he made. Uh, on the tales of that, I want to say one more thing, and then we'll do communion. Um, that word honor, there should be a covering in marriage for one another. Marriage should be the safest place on earth besides the throne room. Mm-hmm. It should be the safest place on earth. There are intimate details Josh has shared with me about his life, secrets that he's told absolutely no one but me. 
And I, we've been together 39 years. I've never shared it. I never will share it because Josh has to feel safe bearing his soul to me. I have to feel safe bearing my soul to him. That's part of honor. When you honor the one you're with, you'll do that. You'll cover them. 